What a powerful morning of worship it's already been. You know, life is full of these highs and these lows. We have these ups and downs. We have newlyweds who are here today. We have birthday celebrations. We have also a funeral service later this afternoon for Larry Dowdy. And uh, it'll be a celebration, of course, but we're sad because we miss him and we loved him. So there are these ups and downs in all of our lives. I know there's people in here who are dealing with job loss, with sickness, uh, who are dealing with loneliness and depression and anxiety, but the one who makes sense of it all is Jesus Christ, and that's who we are here to talk about today. So that was the sermon before the sermon. That was free. You're, you're welcome for that. Today, we're going to continue our series on the Apostles' Creed as we're walking line by line through this, this important document of the Christian faith. And Sometimes I wonder, is this really the right thing to do? Are we pushing all these Baptists too far, making them read the creed every week? Is this something that's foolish? Meanwhile, we have people in our church who grew up in liturgical traditions that say, what's the big deal? Why is everybody freaking out? And nobody's really freaking out about it. But uh, the Lord is good, and he affirms us sometimes in our decisions, which is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Uh, Just this past week, I was reading in the newspaper a sad story about a, a woman who lives here in Nashville who's son was a victim of abuse at the hands of a priest, which, by the way, that whole situation is just so tragic and and abhorrent to God and to me and to our church, and I want you to know that we have taken major steps to ensure that that doesn't happen here at Woodmont Baptist Church, and we're taking even more steps in being diligent to keep our children safe here at Woodmont Baptist Church. But the woman was talking about bearing this burden of, of having a son who's been through this, this horrible, tragic process. And, and here's the solution that this brave mother offered in light of this whole crisis. She said, quote, if everyone would adhere to the theology and to the doctrine, if everyone would adhere to the theology and the doctrine, we'd be better off. So I stay with the theology and the basic teachings and pray for healing. Wow. This woman knows that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. She understands that if we would simply stick to the basic teachings of the church, the historic Christian faith, then we will do the right things. We will then align ourselves with God's will for our lives and for our church. And then last weekend during this conference that Richard and Trey and I got to to go and be a part of, there's a a conference about uh, singing, about congregational singing, and David Platt was speaking on Tuesday night. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention's International Mission Board. Even though he's stepping down, he's still the president. But he said that it's not enough for us to teach people that the gospel, that the good news is simply that Jesus died for your sins and you can go to heaven if you admit, believe, and confess. And Richard kind of elbowed me when he said that and smiled because we have just been talking about how the creed gives us a fuller picture of the gospel. It gives us a great sweeping narrative overview of all of the story of everything ever from creation to new creation. And then last weekend at our conference about marriage, not a marriage conference, Fran Shaka was lamenting the fact that so many churches teach a very shallow theology. It usually consists of this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I even got a card in the mail this weekend from a church that said, um, 
will help you achieve your dreams. It's not even God's dream. It's you achieve your dreams. Come to our church and you can achieve your dreams. And they leave it there. A lot of churches just leave it as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. That's it. They don't ever go any further with the story of the Bible, which teaches that after Genesis 3, our world is broken. Our world is fallen. We are fallen and broken and born sinful. Psalm 51 that Richard read earlier, surely I was sinful from birth. This is why we have poverty in Central Asia that, that our kids have no idea about, right? And they know a little bit more now thanks to Alina today. They need to know the creed because it helps us to go deeper into God's story of everything ever. So it's my hope that by walking through these eternal truths of Christian doctrine and, and the creed together that we will have a fuller picture of who God is and who he wants us to be and what he's up to so that we can more fully be a part of it. Again, the creed is not the Bible. This is not scripture. The creed is not our authority. Only the Bible is. Only the Bible is our basis for understanding the Christian faith and life. But like I said, the creed is a sweeping overview of Scripture. It gives us the components of the story. It gives us the components of God's nature and his purpose. It's a gift from the ancient church to the modern church, and I, for one, am thankful that we have it. One last general word on the Apostles' Creed before we get into our text for today. I've always loved Rich Mullins. We were talking about Rich Mullins yesterday, Calvin. Calvin said, he's so underappreciated. People just look him over. I said, I know. <laughs> There's a song that he has called Creed, simply Creed. And I, I've always loved that song. He sings the lines of the Apostles' Creed, and he sings it so passionately. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven, maker of earth. But I didn't know where the chorus had come from until recently. I I saw that it actually, one of the lines in the chorus came from a little book called Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, who wrote this little volume of essays in 1908. He was a great British philosopher and theologian. In the introduction, Chesterton writes, these essays are concerned only to discuss the actual fact that the central Christian theology, sufficiently summarized in the Apostles' Creed, is the best root of energy and sound ethics. In other words, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. When the word orthodoxy, he says, is used here, it means the Apostles' Creed, as understood by everybody calling himself a Christian until a very short time ago, and the general historic conduct of those who held such a creed. Then later in the book he says, I will not call the creed my philosophy, for I did not make it. God and humanity made it, and it made me. Rich Mullins sings, I believe what I believe is what makes me who I am. I did not make it, no, it is making me. I said I did not make it, no, it is making me. It is the very truth of God not the invention of any man. Isn't that good? That's how I feel about these truths that we profess here today. It is the very truth of God that we are proclaiming. 
not the invention of any man. And I did not make this. Seminary did not make this. God made this. And it is making me because I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I believe that what you believe is what makes you who you are. So with that being said, let's get into the second portion of the creed. It's the longest section of the creed, and it deals with the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. It begins with the line, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. That's plenty right there to unpack. In fact, we will just scratch the surface of it today by looking at one of the greatest Christological texts in all of the Bible, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Who is this Jesus Christ that we claim to believe in? Let's find out. I invite you to stand, if you're able to, this morning one more time in honor of God's word as I read our text together, or out loud, I'll read it. You don't have to read it. He is the image, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. You know, the, the reason that the Apostles' Creed has this section on Jesus as the, the largest part, as the central part of the whole creed is because our faith, the Christian faith, is a Christocentric faith. That means it's centered on Christ. We're monotheists, just like our Jewish and, and Muslim friends. We could all agree probably on that first line of the creed, couldn't we? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Father Abraham, Jews, Muslims, Christians, all trace our spiritual lineage back to one man, Abram of Ur, of the Chaldeans. But at the second line of the creed, we diverge drastically with our Jewish and Muslim friends because we're not just monotheists, but we are Christological monotheists. That's radically different. That means that Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. That means that Christ is at the center of God's work of redemption. That means Christ is the key piece to this whole puzzle that God is putting together. Christ is the protagonist in the Bible. He's the hero of the story of everything ever. Christ is the one that every page of Scripture points to. Every page of the Old Testament points forward to the Christ who is to come. Every page of the New Testament points back to the Christ event in the Gospels. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, every page whispers his name. When Paul and Timothy write these words to the church in Colossae, they are reminded that this little struggling church needs to keep Christ at the center. They've, they've drifted into false teaching, so they give them this hymn of Christ 
in order to bring them back to a Christological center. Many scholars do think that what they're quoting here is an early Christian hymn. It's a song that's used in early Christian worship. Maybe it's a poem that's going around churches. It's a a song that exalts Christ as supreme over all, that Christ is all we need. Broken heart in Christ, you have it all. We need this word today, don't we? We need, I need this word. I should never get tired of talking about Jesus. I need to be reminded that Jesus is greater than anything else that we could ask or imagine. I need to be reminded of his goodness, of his greatness, of his supremacy in all things. His name should be sweet to our lips. It shouldn't sound strange in our homes when we talk about Jesus. It should be like beautiful music to our ears and to those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in him. So let's talk about Jesus a little bit today, okay? First, this, this hymn here in verse 15 says that Christ is the, the image of the invisible God. The word in Greek is icon. He's the icon. All images of God are false, right? All images of God are idols. Icons are wrong. All depictions of God fall short of God's glory, except one, the ultimate icon of Jesus Christ. He perfectly shows us God's glory. He shows us God's nature, God's attributes. You want to know about God? Look at Christ. Look at his teachings. Look at his example. Look at his self-giving, sacrificial, agape love. That's who God is. How do we know that's true? How can we trust that? Because Jesus has actually been God from the very beginning. He is the firstborn of all creation, it says. That doesn't mean that he was the first to be born. He wasn't the first you know, person that Adam and Eve didn't give birth to Jesus. We're not talking about Jesus simply as the man who was born in the flesh in the manger and walked this earth for 33 years teaching and, and healing others and eventually dying on the cross. We're talking here about the Christ who is the divine word, the Christ who is and was pre-existent with the Father and the Spirit as part of the triune God before all time, now and forever. Look at John 1.1, you know this verse, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos, the Word, was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was God. Again, there are churches I would not call them churches. There are communities of faith in our community in Nashville who teach that Jesus was not God, which I believe is in clear violation of this text. I believe that once you deny the divinity of Jesus, you are no longer within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. But that's another sermon. The the word is the logos, the word, the wisdom of, of God. It's the beloved son of God who has always been God and always will be God. He's the firstborn of all creation in the sense that he's really the firstborn over all creation. He's existed before creation, and now he has the rights of a firstborn son over all of the created order. Christ is supreme in all creation. Why? Because all creation is about him. Look at verse 16. 
For by him, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Wow. This, this means that Christ is both the agent and the goal of creation. He's the means by which creation was brought into existence, but he's also the goal that all creation is pointing to and going towards at the same time. This means that Christ is supreme over all creation because he is the agent and the goal. Christ is that divine word by which God spoke all creation into existence. And he's also the reason for it all. All creation sings his praise. And one day, every knee will bow on earth and on heaven, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wait a minute. I thought that God the Father made the world. Didn't we just say last week, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Are you saying that Jesus made the world? No, I'm not saying that. Someone on our sermon listening team last week asked me to explain some more about the Trinity. They asked where it was found in Scripture. And I said, well, it's, it's not. I mean, there's no verse that says, this is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's no verse that says the word Trinity. But the truth of the reality of the triune God is all over the Bible. I would argue it's in the first three verses of the Bible. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit, capital S, of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And you smart people may say, okay, I see God the Father here. You know, God made the, the creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And I see the Spirit. That's pretty obvious. The Spirit of God is over the face of the deep. But where's Jesus in this? Where's Christ? Well, look again at verse 3. God said. Christ is the eternal word of God that goes forth from the Father and accomplishes his will. Therefore, Christ is over all. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When it says before all, it, it doesn't mean that, that he existed before all here. It means he's in first place. He's at the front of the line. He's the head guy. He's in front of all things. He's over all things and because Christ is before and above and first prime, primacy, he alone has the power to sustain life for all things. He sits now next to the Father in heaven, having accomplished his earthly work, and he's just giving life to that which he has brought into existence. It's a beautiful picture. And now Paul moves in verse 18 from creation to new creation, the new covenant body of believers, that's us. The church universal, the holy Catholic universal church around the world. Look at verse 18. And Christ is the head of the body, the church. The, the same Christ who is the image, the icon of God and the firstborn, the prototokos, that's the Greek word for firstborn over all creation is also the head of the church. We are his body now on earth. 
we act as the hands and the feet of Christ, always controlled by the head, right? That's why we helped build a Habitat house all day yesterday. That's why we're sending another team back to Dominica, this little island. Jim Myers told me that Dominica, the landmass is uh, a little over half the size of Davidson County, and it's a nation that needs a lot of help. This is why we're supporting the education of children in Sierra Leone, where Marcus Voller, our chairman of deacons, is going to be going next week, next month, sorry. It's because we're the body of Christ that we give food bags each week to students at Hillsborough High School who need sustenance over the weekend when they're not receiving free lunches and breakfast. Every time we minister to the needs of others, we're acting in accordance with our status as the new covenant body of Christ. And it is now the preexistent word of God in heaven who is our exalted head. It is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, was crucified, dead and buried, and rose again. The risen Christ is our head. Look at the rest of verse 18. He's the beginning, the firstborn, the prototokos again from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, firstborn here doesn't mean the first one to be raised from the dead, right? We know that God used Elijah and Elisha to, to bring someone who is dead back to life. Of course, Jesus himself raised Jairus' daughter, right? He called Lazarus out of the tomb. So Jesus wasn't the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he was the first one to come from death to life, but it does mean that he's the key to all resurrections, including the final one that we just sang about, that we just proclaimed that we believe in, the resurrection of the body that will occur when Jesus comes back and closes this chapter and opens the new chapter of the new creation. Lord, come quickly. This makes him preeminent. By, by Christ are we made alive. By Christ are we, do we move from death to life. That means he's the key to the resurrection. That makes him preeminent in all things. I love that word preeminent. It's only used here in the entire Bible. And it means literally towering above all others. Christ towers above all others. This is the message of the gospel, that Christ is greater than everything else, that he towers over everything else. The best commentary on this truth is what I just quoted from Philippians 2, chapter 9, uh, chapter, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, towers above all other names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus towers over everything else because he's the key to God's entire plan of redemption in the universe. Look at verses 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The glory of God, everything that God is, was pleased to dwell in Christ. I love that. Why was Jesus filled with the fullness of God? So that he could bring everything back to God. Verse 20, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. When, when did everything get lost? If, if God has to reconcile, reconcile means to put back together. When did it get lost from God? Genesis 3. When sin entered the world and plunged it all into death and darkness and decay, from that point on, God has been about the work of reversing the curse of sin and death. He's reconciling it all back to himself. How? Through Jesus Christ. This is where Christianity comes to be so much more than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God's doing something so much bigger than just taking you to heaven. Fran Shaka said most of us think of evangelism as throwing a life preserver to these poor sinners who are caught in the river of sin, right? Throw a life preserver and save them from the river. But he said, really, evangelism is calling someone into a life with Jesus and to, you know, die to themselves. Really, what you're asking them to do is get off the safe shore and jump in the whitewater rapids of what God is doing in this world and be a part of God's work and God's story and enjoy the ride, right? That's a much healthier picture of evangelism. God does love you, okay? He does have a wonderful plan for your life. That's all true. But it's not so that you can have a nice house. It's not so you can be comfortable. It's, it's, that's so boring. That's such a weak story. God wants you to jump into the white water and be part of his amazing plan that he's revealed to us. Look at Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. It says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Last week at the, at the conference, the Sing Conference, Richard and I heard David Platt say that we in this country are indeed blessed. I know you're going through hard times, but let's keep it in perspective, right? We have material resources that people in other nations will never have. And those of us who are in Christ are blessed beyond measure. We've been given abundant life both now and forever. But Platt said that in our fallen nature, we're, we're prone to disconnect God's blessing in our lives from God's purpose for our lives. We disconnect those things. How do we play our part in God's purpose? It's not by trying harder to be good. It's not by even doing good works like building a habitat house. It's by treasuring Christ as preeminent. Alina, Alina gave us the perfect example. By putting him in the first place in our lives. To say we believe Jesus is the Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ, means we believe Jesus is the ultimate prophet who brought us good news, the best news, that he's the ultimate king. He's the ruler over our hearts and lives and our world. He's the ultimate priest who mediates perfectly between holy God and fallen humans. You know, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's not like Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph Christ. That's not how that works. Christ means anointed one. It's Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew. It's the one that the whole Old Testament was looking to who would come and rescue this world and bring it all back to God. That's why he's Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. When I talk to kids about baptism and salvation, I always tell kids, to say Jesus is Lord means Jesus is the boss, but he's a really good boss. To say he's Lord means that he's in charge of your life both now and forever, and he will never let go 
of you as his child. J.I. Packer says, if Jesus is God the Son, our co-creator, and also Christ, the anointed Savior King, now risen from death and reigning, sitting on the right hand of God the Father in the place of authority and power, then he has a right to rule us, and we have no right to resist his claim. So here's the application for today. What rules you? What dictates how you live your life? What do you love more than anything? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you savor Jesus as ultimately good and glorious? At the conference last week, John Piper said that to be a Christian is to say that you have found Jesus to be ultimately satisfying, and the rest of life is war against everything else that competes for that title. I think that's, that's true. If you're a Christian here, you're saying that you found Jesus to be ultimately satisfying and nothing else will compare. No uh, goods in this world. He's more precious than jewels, than diamonds, than all the riches this world has to offer. If we don't find Christ to be most satisfying, what are we doing here? <laughs> We're just checking it off our list, right? Or hanging out with some good people. Are you a Christian who's here today? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Is Jesus Lord of your heart and your life? Do you believe that he is preeminent over all creation, that he towers over not only this world, but you and your life as well? Or are you looking to something else to give you what only Jesus can, what he longs to give you, if only you'll receive it? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed to us your plan of the gospel to redeem not only us, fallen sinful people, but to bring everything that was wrecked in the fall back to yourself. Help us to get off the shore and jump into the whitewater, to get in the rapids, just enjoy this wild ride of what you're doing in our world. God, we pray that if there's anyone here who may not be a Christian, who has not professed that you are ultimately satisfying and that has not received the, the free gift of salvation that you extend to them by grace through faith, we pray they would do so now. We pray for those who, like me, God, who tend to put the competitors in your place, who have a tendency in our fallenness to see other things as satisfying to see other things as ultimately good or to define our lives in any other way than Jesus Christ. May we say what Alina said today, that Jesus Christ is all we need, that if we have Jesus and nothing else, we will be satisfied, that Jesus is enough, oh God. We pray these things in earnest prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. We're going to sing, I, I, follow, I will follow Jesus. Um, and if you have not followed Jesus, I'd love to talk to you about that now, what it means to lay down your life, to get off the shore and into the white water of what Jesus is doing. Maybe uh, you've, you are not a, a member of this church and you want to join Woodmont and be a part of what God's doing here. I'd love to talk to you about membership as well. Maybe you've never been baptized and you want to follow Jesus' example of uh, baptism by immersion and believer's baptism and 
and, and follow his example of uh, being immersed in the water. Maybe you just want to come pray at the altar. I'm going to ask Trey, and I'm going to ask Sarah Collier if you'll come here as well, and Brad if you'll come. And, and if you want to pray with one of these prayer warriors, they would love to just pray with you here. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you need emotional healing or, or physical or whatever it may be. Maybe you're, you want to intercede on behalf of someone else and you feel like God's calling you to come to intercede today. We, the altar will be open for that. Whatever you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing together.